All right, welcome into another edition of the Salt City Hoops podcast. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Here alongside Ben Dowsett, writer, editor, extremely important, smart person for, I don't know, who all do you write for now anyway? Uh, I'm uh, I'm writing for a number of sites this year. <laughs> uh, well, at the moment, it's it's actually really not that many. So Salt City Hoops, and then um, I'm writing for uh, both Hardwood Paroxysm and Nylon Calculus, so kind of the Hardwood Paroxysm network a little bit in there. So Ben Dowsett, nationally recognized writer. Can we put it that way? <laughs> I would. It honors me to put it that way, maybe a little more than I deserve, but sure, let's okay. do it. That. And then also B-Ball Breakdown, I just want to say that real quick, oh, which is a right. really, really good site, and you guys should all check it out. But so, anyway, sorry, plugs over for that. Yes, nationally recognized writer Ben Dowsett. Um, so we had a jazz game. We finally have a podcast with jazz games to talk about. Of course, we had the home game Monday uh, that we covered on Salt City Hoops, and then we had the um, away game against Portland yesterday, which we did not cover on Salt City Hoops because, well, quite frankly, we couldn't see any of it, so we have no idea what we're talking about. So um, we're going to have Justin Sweeney. Um, he's a Portland resident and broadcasting pro on the show uh, today, coming in in just a few minutes here. Uh, and then we'll also have Dan Clayton that coming in at 10 o'clock to talk about his last few articles on Salt City Hoops mm-hmm. regarding pace. Um, so good. They've which, been really good. Yeah, are, are like really high-quality articles. He should be, if not already, a nationally recognized writer because I, I think Dan puts out some really quality analysis. I that may, may or may not have recommended him for one of those websites that I, <laughs> wrote, that I mentioned earlier. Good. Okay. Well, you can't... Th- so long as you guys are still within the Salt City Hoops umbrella and you don't take yourselves away from me, then I'm, I'm okay with it. You guys, Fair you, enough. Have to, you have to at least stick with Salt City Hoops. We like Staying close much. to the nest. Thank you. Um, so I, I want to talk about two things bef- first before we really get into the show's analysis. First of, all, first of all, if you haven't listened, if you don't follow me on Twitter and don't follow Ben on Twitter, you should. We're at Andy B. Larson and at Ben underscore Dowsett. Um, but there's a surprising number of people who actually listen to this podcast who don't follow us on Twitter, or at least statistically, that's likely. Um, and so we have an announcement to make, namely that the radio show version of the show, which will be significantly more entertaining and blown out with bigger guests and more call-in support and, you know, all these other cool things that radio allows us to do, will be starting Thursday, October 23rd from 7 to 9 p.m. So every week after that and every Thursday after that. So, um, Thursdays, 7 to 9 p.m. on ESPN 700, your favorite radio station, um, with beautiful new studios, by the way. So, Very beautiful. I, I'm, I'm excited for the radio show. I presume you are as well. I really am. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. I, I really think that we're going to be able to provide a different kind of radio show, a different kind of analysis than people are used to on the radio, um, kind of using our Salt City Hoop smarts and hilarity. We'll have Jimbo on the show at some point, and you know, hopefully the FCC doesn't take, off, take us off the air. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be lovely. We'll, so, t- we'll talk to him beforehand. We'll make sure. <laughs> So then the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I've been railing on this also on Twitter recently, is that last night's game wasn't on TV is, quite frankly, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, so apparently, first of all, it was on 
these illegal streams that I don't, I, I don't know don't. if it was illegal or not. I asked my Twitter feed for someone, and I specified in my asking non-illegal, but <laughs> the, I don't know. Based on my experience with illegal streams, it looked like it could have been one of those. Like, there was no scoreboard uh, on the feed that I had, and it was a Portland feed that was showing little pictures of the Portland players anytime they scored a basket, and then also the replay of that basket, meaning any after any Portland basket, I pretty much missed all the Jazz plays, which was great, but... Yeah, that's that's not ideal. I feel like no, and 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 I, I yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it, I'm gonna let you go on it, but I, I agree. <laughs> it's kind of too bad that we couldn't, at the very minimum, that there wasn't a good online stream from like from UtahJazz.com or something like that. Well, like, and I understand that like there are these media deals that prevent them from necessarily just putting games on the web on the internet for everyone to see, yeah. right? But there aren't media deals to prevent them from just putting all eight preseason games on TV like they do with half of them, like they do with four of them. And in fact, so the Jazz have a are paid $20 million a year for Root Sports to be to broadcast their games, right? It's a 10-year, $240 million, or sorry, 12-year, $240 million contract that the Jazz get in order to broadcast these games. And you're telling me they can only broadcast, you know, all but four of them? I just, I just find that... The the money doesn't work in my head. I mean, it probably does because there are smart people who said you shouldn't broadcast this game. Um, and then Tyler Gibbons, the the producer for RSL for Utah, uh, said that well, one of the biggest reasons that the this game wasn't actually televised was because of high school football. I mean, high school football is should never ever ever. And and I admit that I'm kind of a football hater, so I'm I'm biased on this. But high school football should never ever ever uh, supersede an NBA game, I'm regardless not, preseason, regular season, yeah, whatever. I'm not a football hater, and I agree with that. I, it's like I I can't imagine the. I mean, I know that there's a subset of people who care about high school football, uh, although this isn't Texas, but. <laughs> I I just I uh, that blows my mind. Yeah, I I, I think it's kind of too bad. I guess you know that we can't always necessarily speak to whatever's going on behind the scenes bureaucratically. I suppose, right. but let's be honest, we have no idea. Yeah, and, but and whatever it is, it's too bad. And but. David Locke pointed this out to me too that the Jazz are one of the only teams that actually do radio broadcasts of all their games too, which mm-hmm. you know is good. It's it's at least better than nothing, and and I think David Locke does a great job on on doing that. But it's it's just mind-boggling to me because then we so first of all from our point of view we don't get to analyze the games whatsoever because even if you are able to find this illegal stream the Portland replays of it actually take up all of the chance and possessions. it was terrible quality too so, and terrible quality and you know there's just no hope there and, I, and then let's say something does happen which is my point you know let's say like a highlight like the Gordon Hayward dunk happens you know fans can't see it live maybe they get to see it later on in a highlight video or whatever but again maybe that just emphasizes that there were cameras there to be able to capture the action if they so chose yeah the other thing is you know let's say it's not even a highlight so you can't even show it in a highlight reel later on let's say it's like a 50 point game for Gordon Hayward last night there's no way you can just show highlights of that 50-point game and do it justice, right? That, yeah. I mean, part of the cumulative enjoyment of a 50-point game like that is to have, to just be able to see all of the plays, be able to see the the diverse array of plays that lead to that sort of career-defining performance, which can happen in the preseason. I mean, I, I know it sounds silly, but, like, Jeremy Evans' career is, like, Fifty percent preseason right now. Yeah, it's true. You guys, this is a, a genuine Andy rant. We don't get these. Too, <laughs> we don't get these too often. So enjoy it while it's here. I, I, I just can't believe. I mean, I, I just can't believe that we're in 2014 and we don't have all NBA games on TV. 
given that there's $2.6 billion of money coming into the league each year from this new TV deal. And even just looking at the Jazz's TV deal, $20 million a year should be enough to get all the games on. But agree. luckily, we still can provide some analysis for you because Justin Sweeney, uh, who was at the game last night and so can actually tell us things about it, unlike <laughs> us, um, will be able to break the game down for you. Justin, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you guys doing today? Good. So, first of all, Justin, tell our audience just a little bit about who you are and, and your ties to Utah. Yeah, first of all, uh, how am I sounding? Is there a bit of an echo? Do you guys notice that at all? Mm, uh, seems fine to me. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm wired into my car speaker, so sometimes I'm uh, a little worried about feedback. But, yeah, so uh, I uh, made my way to Salt Lake City back in the 2012-2013 season uh, for a little cup of coffee, if you will. I had the... Uh, rare opportunity of serving as one of four that season, uh, broadcast assistant interns for David Locke, and uh, got to be an integral part of the broadcast on certain nights. I'd help with the production up in the studio, assisting uh, the fearless and talented uh, Travis Rust, and then on other nights I'd work alongside David Boone and uh, David Locke and Ron Boone, fellow wires crossed there. Uh, David Boone, it's one person. <laughs> exactly. The conglomeration but yeah it was a fantastic experience checked the jazz personally during the 2012-2013 season as i continue to try to seek onward and upward avenues in my broadcasting career i'm originally from portland so once the season ended i moved back to portland but that uh, didn't bring to an end the uh my love of the jazz so let me ask first of all before we get into the game am i off base with my rant there that the jazz should be broadcasting these games I only heard the tail end of it, but I think every NBA game that's ever broadcast, whether it involves two NBA teams or one NBA team, it's you know, like you said, it's 2014. I don't see why we can't have access to those things. Thank you. That's that's all I wanted to hear. I, I, I you <laughs> know, I was at the game. I'd like to go go home and check it, pull it up on DVR and watch it myself, so I can analyze it a little bit further. That's very fair too. Vindication for Andy. Complete Thank vindic you. complete vindication. Okay, so that well, just makes good sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, okay, so let's get into the game. So, first of all, I want to get your impressions. Kind of, First of all, who are your three stars? What, what were your major impressions watching the game? Um, it was interesting because, humble brag, I got some nice hookups from one of my buddies who's a ticket sales representative um, for the Portland Trailblazers. So I said, hey, I really need to get to this game. Uh, can you do anything for me? He hooked me up with some tickets. Lo and behold, I found myself sitting about six rows behind the Jazz bench. Nice. Uh, just to the left of the aisle. So I had a tremendous view. Um, I could almost hear what Quinn Snyder was saying for a good chunk of the day. And um, therefore, with that kind of proximity, you can see kind of what the players are voicing to each other, how they interact with one another. And not that I spent a lot of time last season in the doldrums, um, of a 25 and 57 season, but um, taking a look at some of the body language of the players, they um, hold. They seem to hold Quinn in high regard. They bought into what he's saying, and there's just a good level of um, focusing out there. There's an old NBA clip out there with a a longtime journalist from the 70s talking about those great Knicks teams of the early 70s, and he used some German word, I think, called uh, gestalt, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know German at all, um, but it's a distinct clip in my mind. And I think that's kind of what this team might be aiming for, just in terms of togetherness. Um, they're young. They're probably not going to make the playoffs. I got excited yesterday watching them play in a Portland team without Damian Lillard. Um, but there's a lot of togetherness, and they seem focused. Um, the second thing I noticed is 
having not seen this team play in person since last December, and having them not really seen them play together since about last April, it just seems like everybody personally, not only just as a team, but everybody personally, um, has really upped their game, stepped up certain parts of their skill set. That's most notable in guys like Alec Burks, uh, Derek Favors, Ennis Cantor, and Jordan Hayward looks like he's just ready to unleash a wrath of fury. I don't know if it has to do um, with him getting stiffed by the U.S. national team. I don't know if it has to do um, with his contracts and his personal expectations being raised. I don't know if it's just pure hunger coming from within himself. Um, but he looks good. There, there were certain times on the floor where he had to look in the eyes with a ball in his hand, standing on the wing, and you're thinking, okay, Gordon's going to go to work right here, and then he fully obliged. Yeah, from the from the brief bits that I was able to see, maybe a little bit more than brief, I suppose the the stream kind of went went poopy on me for <laughs> like a quarter, and then like I was saying, I don't know if you heard this part, but I was I was saying how anytime Portland scored, essentially I wouldn't get to see the next Jazz possession unless it lasted oh, until dear. until the final ten seconds of the yeah they would flash up a little picture of the guy that scored and then go like soccer style and immediately show the replay, which works in soccer because usually there's like a few seconds before the goalie kicks the ball off or whatever. <laughs> But in in basketball, that kind of doesn't happen. The team, the other team, generally brings the ball back down the court, which is why we typically wait for replays until after that. Oh yeah, that uh, works. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, But no. But from what I did see, I I would agree with you about Hayward. He, the you can see the bulk is there. They ran a couple of little down screens down low to get him in the post specifically, which I want to see a lot more of this year. I just think there's. If we're paying this, this is something that people, everybody talks about how, you know, how does, you know, how does Gordon Hayward get that much money and then, and Goran Dragic gets this much or how to, and or Eric Bledsoe gets this much or insert point guard here. How does this point guard get this much where, where Gordon Hayward got this much? And the, of course, the argument for that, that makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about it is the scarcity of position and how rare it is for players in the league to have a skill set like Gordon Hayward's and a a diverse like that. And if that's the case, I want to see him really really exemplifying that. If there's only a few players in the league that can do what he can do, I want to see him do it. And being in the post is one of those things. He's got the size, he's got the speed, and the the way the jumper was falling last night, I mean, he, technically his numbers only say 6 of 12, but that, from what I saw, that thing was going in when he was when he was moving it off the block, which I liked a lot, personally. And what I really liked about the Jazz yesterday, what I saw was the ball movement just seems a lot more fluid this year than ever. Um, the movements are crisp, as you said. The cuts are good. The curls are good. Um, there was one play that's easily identifiable on the highlights where Alec Burks threw down a hammer dunk. There was about three monstrous dunks in that game. Actually, maybe four if you count the Rudy Gobert alley-oop. But mm-hmm. Booker had one early in the game. Uh, Burks had one in the second quarter. And then I tweeted up when Gordon threw down his, I just said we all got raptured by that dunk. <laughs> but, um the, the Burks dunk was interesting because it was just a beautiful curl. If you go back and look at it, um, I can't remember who set the pick, but I think he was coming off of uh, sort of from my point of view, the right side curling inward to the paint. Just a beautifully executed uh, curl by Burks. The pass was delivered right on time, and he finished off the play. And um, if that's an indicator of the kind of passing game and the way the ball is going to flow freely um, around the interior of the arc, I think we're in for, for quite a show offensively by the Jazz of the season. And going back to Gordon, I sort of fall into the camp where um, my background in college, at least, is economics. So I, I tend to judge things in a way where um, that was my philosophy on the free agency this summer was 
Um, that's what the market dictated. As you said, there's a scarcity of people at that position in the league. So don't judge Gordon on $63 million. Judge him on being a member of the Utah Jazz. Judge him on five years' worth of development. But there were a lot of plays where it was tempting. The plays were so good, it was tempting not to say, okay, great, he's living up to that $63 million. <laughs> There's yeah. about three plays in that game where I'm like, okay, that's a $63 million play. I'm trying not to view him through those lens, but yes, it is tempting at times just because Gordon looks ready to burst out on the scene this season. So let me ask, uh, Gordon looked great, apparently. L- let me ask you about Trey Burke, though, because he was kind of the leading scorer, leading assist man for the Jazz, had the highest plus minus, and-, and people seemed to be raving about him after this game. What were your impressions? It's funny because I'm probably not the best person to ask about that question. I, I feel like I view the game in different ways. Uh, the Gordon Dunk, for example, I didn't see it till right as he began to rise because I was focused in on Jeremy Evans. So Trey Burke wasn't the guy I was paying a ton of attention to throughout the game. And I actually went back and looked at the box score, and it seemed like the bench players played more. And kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, man, this Jazz team, they seem to have quite a bit of depth. And then really after looking back at it, for the most part, they really only went eight deep throughout the course of the night. So I don't know if that's an indicator of what we're going to see this season where we're going to have a bunch of starters, but going back to Trey, um, really impressed by him. He looks more mature, uh, looks ready to step up. And for me, because I didn't pay attention to him, maybe it was just a, a personal black hole in the back of my mind that I missed out on, but he seemed kind of quiet until the fourth quarter. And Trey Burke's kind of becoming this guy where I don't know if it really matters as long as he's holding down the fort. And you know if it's a close game, you can depend on him in the fourth quarter. And kind of an idea that's starting to brew in my mind, this isn't a manifest fact yet, but in the fourth quarter, if there's a, if there's a close game, and you have to ask the question, is somebody going to step up? I think the Jazz have a bevy of options. Trey Burke's one. You go back to his NCAA tournament days when he um, pulled Michigan back from the depths many times. And in yesterday's game with 37 seconds left, I was thinking, okay, we need a quick bucket here. There's a guy who can do it. In fact, there are two or three guys who can do it. We can give it to Trey. We can give it to Alec because, you know, if Alec gets the ball, he's just going to immediately charge to the hoop, and he's either going to draw a foul or who knows, the world could explode. God forbid an offensive foul be drawn, or, you know, he can maneuver his way and get a bucket. But then Trey's there, too. He can create quickly, and he loves that spot from the left arc, kind of the same spot on the floor, opposite side where Damian Lillard hit the game winner against the Rockets last year. And about 37 seconds left, Trey rose, and I said, this is going to be good. And he nailed it, and I wasn't surprised at all. And we've already reached that point with Trey in his second year at the point guard position for the Utah Jazz where he gets the ball late. You feel better more often than not that he's going to knock down a big shot because he has that clutch gene. He was so the th- I again I didn't I didn't have a scoreboard on the stream that I was watching. <laughs> I didn't I had no clue what the score was. I was looking through my feed right at the time my girlfriend had just come over. Like I I didn't know what was going on. I saw him hit the shot and the, just from the way people reacted and whatnot, I was like, oh, that was probably a really big shot. And then I saw Portland take the timeout immediately right after. The thing for me that I noticed about Trey that I liked is he looks fast. And that's that. It, as far as physical device, and I don't disagree with anything that you're saying about the the kind of the way he's he's matured and how the Jazz, yeah, they have more than one option there as a, as a late game option. And Trey looked really good for that type of thing last night. But I remember one or two occasions where he's he's really taking Quinn Snyder's philosophy of pushing the ball off opponent misses. He's really taking that to heart. I watched him go straight into the teeth of the defense a couple of times last night. Just 
wanting to push the pace and knowing that if he catches these guys off guard and frankly Portland wasn't ready for it and the Jazz did a bunch of that I both Burke the uh, Burke I or whatever the Burks and Burke both of <laughs> both of them over the this bros. yeah the bros over this two game set of Portland both of them did a really really good job of pushing the ball up the Jazz are, are really looking to they're looking for that outlet pass immediately off the misses Absolutely. even if it's even if so let's even say Rudy Gobert gets the rebound or somebody our favors gets the rebound pass the point guard real quick the point guard themselves is in every case is looking right up whether it's Exum or Burke or Burks whoever they're looking right up immediately and they're getting ready then if they're seeing the other guard on the floor or the, the you know a Hayward or a Burks or whoever they're hitting them with that first quick outlet pass and boom all of a sudden we're in the pseudo half court and if they're not completely yeah. set we're going for it yeah, that's a great point you raised. That's something else that stood out to me yesterday. I thought we were winning the rebounding battle a lot more than we were. You left the box score after the game and at the tie at 39 each, I believe. But it felt like, especially in the first half, Jazz had a great command on the boards. Um, I believe the Blazers won the third quarter. I don't know score-wise, but um, front-court battles-wise, because LaMarcus was on the floor. and He, he had limited time, um, but he was incredibly efficient and had his way with Tanner offensively most of the night. It was a good growing pains type game. Ernest Cantor, but you got to hand it to him because he didn't quit. But about midway through the second quarter is when it really dawned on me, hey, this team is getting defensive rebounds, and not only are they boarding, they're getting after it on the boards, both Cantor and Favors as well. And yes, as you described, when they get that ball, they don't screw around. They're not ripping it and cradling it and kind of cowering down trying to protect it. They look for Trey, they look for Dante, and off they go right down the floor. And they push the ball, and the other thing that struck me was hey, they're getting good shots, and they're going to work on offense, and there's 19 seconds left on the shot clock, and I was absolutely thrilled about that. Yeah, that's a good sign. All right, well, Justin, we got to let you go in order to clear up the phone line for our next guest, Dan Clayton. Sure thing. But thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for giving us the your perspective on last night's game from six rows behind the Jazz bench. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one, guys. You too. All right, so Dan, sorry, I, Dan just sent me a text said he was calling in and got and the got busy, busy signal yeah. so i wanted to at least let him get on the show um but i i thought justin's analysis was really interesting there especially from someone who hasn't seen this team live in you know 10 months or so just because he is based in portland uh there's it seems to be a difference in how the jazz look um out there on the floor you see different things when you when you watch a game live even from you know even myself i haven't you know i haven't had a chance yet this year to see the team live since that includes summer league that includes the preseason so far and the scrimmages and whatnot i'm going to notice different things the first time I, i'm going to make it to a couple of preseason games when they're back in town like i i guarantee it's going to be the same way i'm going to notice some things that you just you, you just even if i'm not as close to the court as him which i won't be because i'm broke and i don't <laughs> and i don't have the same kind of good hookup here with the jazz tickets that he does clearly but yeah I, I I think I like that kind of on-the-ground analysis. Yeah, and I do too. Okay, so we do have Dan. Dan, are you there? Hey, guys. How's it going? Happy Friday. Good. Yeah, we're excited about Friday. Um, we're I already went on my we didn't get to see the Jazz game on TV last night rant, so now that I have that out of my system, I'm feeling a lot better. <laughs> yeah. No, I, um, without incriminating myself, I, I will just say that was a less pleasant viewing experience than the typical one. Uh, we are already aware of the existence of some sort of semi-legal broadcast stream that apparently I I, I didn't get to watch any of it, but you uh, know uh, you just you you're on Twitter and then links appear and you click on things. Yeah, that's all that <laughs> happened know. for me. I didn't search illegal stream. I just uh, somebody put me a link and I clicked the link. That's all I did. 
at any rate, it was uh, it was a it was a fun game, even if all you were doing is watching the box score. That was uh, that was some some high drama for a preseason basketball. Was game. it staying close basically the entire fourth quarter? Because like I said, I had no I didn't know if you heard me before. I had no scoreboard on my potentially illegal screen illegal stream. No, well that's the thing you had to you had to kind of like keep an eye on that, but also watch stats because there was no scoreboard on it. Yeah. Um, no, Portland actually went you know with a few minutes left, five or six minutes left, they went up pretty significantly and at that point you know the jazz weren't defending and and things looked pretty bleak and body language was bad and they just looked tired and disinterested and and not doing all the little defensive things and at one point i actually said you know in a in a total in a totally non-emotional way i just kind of fact-based said yeah the jazz aren't going to win this game um that tweet has since been retweeted many, many times since nice. the Jazz <laughs> won the game. I'm going to go find uh, but, that after this. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't close. The Jazz had to claw back, um, which, uh, granted, they did against Joel Freeland and Myers Leonard at all. But, uh, but still, you know, impressive for a young team to be able to fight back on the road, even in a quasi-real game. And that was a big shot from Trey, you know? Again, I know, it's, it's quasi-real is a good way of putting it, right? But... Th- there's still 35 seconds left in a basketball game and you're still hitting like a 31 footer or whatever that was that he hit. That was, I mean, that was a good shot. I was see, like I said, again, sorry, I hate to keep repeating it. Had no scoreboard. Didn't know exactly what was going on. So when he first went up for the shot, my first thought was like, well, what are you doing? Like, what, what not a good is shot. that? Like he just, you came around to pick and was th- five feet outside the three point line and just fired up. But like that thing went down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had some big. Sh- he had a couple big shots actually down the stretch, and um, and Favors hit a, a nice layup and one, and and you know Gobert kept a free throw miss alive. Or, that was no, really nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just a lot of guys made plays, and you know we we talk about it every year, whether it's a, an up year for the Jazz or a down year for the Jazz. That's what it takes to win on the road. You can't you can't win on the road because one guy or two guys had a decent night. You you really need a lot of guys. Um, chipping in and doing different things. And, hey, I mean, Rudy had a rough night. Um, even Trey had a, if I'm remembering right, I, th- I think he kind of had a slow start. No, I'm probably mixing games here. But the point is, you know, um, when it mattered, a bunch of different guys did the right things. And uh, and like I say, five minutes from the end of that game, I didn't think the Jazz had a shot. Yeah, no, I, I think that's encouraging. So, uh that was just one preseason game, and so I, I want to put it just aside for a little bit and talk about kind of your last two posts for Salt City Hoops, or I guess I should say your last three posts for Salt City Hoops, um, the ones about the passing and the ones about pace. And maybe the biggest reason I want to talk about them is because actually people within the jazz organization has, have come up to me to talk about your post stand. So like I, I figure that they're probably worth talking about. <laughs> well... That's uh, that's good to know. The passing one too. I I hadn't heard about that one. Well, I got a te- anyway. Th- this is uh, secret insider information, but yes. Um, okay. So anyway, we, we let's can... let's talk about that one first because I am curious okay. about it. I, I asked um, Quinn Snyder about this, and and this is kind of how your piece begins. You know, sometimes you make these sort of sloppy passes, the passes that are likely to result in turnovers, but they're also more likely to result in hoops, too. And so you found that there is actually a correlation between kind of giving the ball away on these passing turnovers and a better offense. Yeah, I mean, I, it's actually kind of uncanny. I'm looking at the spreadsheet now with the raw data, and I mean, it's it's crazy when you have it sort, sorted by, you know, who commits the most passing turnovers and the least passing turnovers, it's, it's almost mutually exclusive. Uh, I mean, there's some, there's some exceptions because 
as I said in my post, Philly sucks at everything. So they're both <laughs> a bad passing turnover team and a bad offense. But if you take Philly out of the mix, the message here pretty, pretty strongly is if you commit a lot of passing turnovers, you're at least an average effective field goal percentage team. And, and more likely, you know, like Miami's in there. They're number one in effective field goal percentage and number two in overall offensive efficiency. Uh, San Antonio's number two in effective field goal percentage. They're the fifth worst team for passing turnovers. So, you know, at that end of the spectrum, you've got really, you know, you've got mostly top 10 effective field goal percentage teams, but you don't have anything worse than um, average except for, you know, Philadelphia because they're just awful. And then if you go to the other end of the spectrum and you look at the teams that are really protecting the pass and, and not committing passing turnovers, almost without exception, they're below average teams. I mean, New York is number 12 in effective field goal percentage. Um, but, you know, that's, again, that's probably just because they have enough talent that they can play ISO at times and still get a bucket if you think about, you know, Melo's offensive abilities. But beyond New York, I mean, you know, 17, 17, 20, 24, 25, those are the rankings. In, those are the field goal rankings of the teams that have the fewest passing turnovers. So it really, I mean, the correlation was, is actually pretty startling. Um, good offenses are okay playing sloppy at times if it means moving the ball around. Yeah, you name so you name kind of the exceptions to the rule, but I, I want to give at least the positive cases so people understand what we're talking about. So like the sure. teams with the most passing turnovers, we've got Miami Heat, which is, you know, quite a good team. San Antonio, last year's finalists. Um, who, who are fourth and fifth respectively in the most passing turnovers. So fourth and fifth worst in passing turnovers, and they're the two best offenses in or the two best field goal percentages anyway in the league, um, effective field goal percentage, and the two NBA finalists. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, to me, that that's powerful. You've got Portland up there too, by any measure, last year a top five offense, um, and then Golden State and Atlanta, which are also you know capable to uh, definitely above average offensive teams. Um, and then on the teams that don't end up passing the ball, you've got teams like New Orleans, you've got Toronto, you've got Orlando, Sacramento, Cleveland, Charlotte, like these Memphis. teams that nobody's looking at uh, positively for uh, you know offensive performance. Yeah, yeah, and then and then on top of that, what you find is that the teams that are committing more passing turnovers seem to be able to take better care of the ball in other categories. Um, likely because, and this is a little bit of a sh- of a shot from the hip, but likely because, you know, you're not if you're not playing a bunch of ISO basketball, you're probably not going to run into all the same handling turnovers that teams get when their offense is basically, hey guy, go dribble around for 20 seconds and see if you can find something. So, yeah, I, I um, think that maybe that may be a slight shot from the hip, but I think if you <laughs> I think if you understand basketball, I think that's the, there's almost no question that that's pretty much exactly why that is. Like uh, a great example, you mentioned the Knicks a second in your last statement there. And my my immediate thought when you said Carmelo and like his his style kind of lends itself to more of the iso ball that they play, my first thought was like, oh man, what if we in this hypothetical world put Carmelo in a situation where he could actually catch and shoot more often with a good offense that moved the ball? Oh wait, that was the Olympic team where he was like incredible for two straight Olympics and was basically the best player on those teams because they could put him in a real functioning offense that didn't just involve like, hey, give Melo the ball on the side and kind of get out of the way, like. Yeah. I, I think that's that. That's sort. I mean, 
I think your your piece is really really good evidence towards the the, the idea of just like almost in any situation, and of course there are exceptions to everything, but almost in any situation. You, the ball moves faster than people. You've got like there. It's smarter to move the ball and to use all five of the available bodies on the court to create space for yourself. It's just got to be. Yep. And and you know I, we need to be careful about because obviously what we're not trying to say here: passing turnovers are not good for your offense. Yeah. Passing turnovers cost you. Like there's a there's a direct mathematical cost to your offensive efficiency every time you commit a passing turnover. We're not saying passing turnovers are good. We're saying passing turnovers and good offenses seem to be correlated because they're both caused by the same thing. Both of those things are the result of, of having a passing mindset on your team. That's good for your offense, and, and that's good for your offense to such a degree that it more than washes away the negative impact to the, you know, to the six, seven mistakes a game you, that, that you make when you play that way. You put correlation does not equal causation. You put that put that in your piece. Spoke right to the sociology major in me. It was great. And, and I think for the Jazz, who have put up 21 turnovers in consecutive games now, this has to be a promising sign because you know the Jazz are making a lot of these passing turnovers right now. You know you'd expect them to. It's preseason, but I think it is at least more encouraging than you might think. I fully expect them to be in the near the top of this category this year given the style that they're trying to play but the fact that they're still so young and have so much inexperience. I I I almost hope they are in a sense. Yeah. I would agree. I I think we'll see a lot of passing turnovers this year at, at least early. Maybe they'll curtail it as the season goes on. I think they'll also um, you know, be in a position where they'll probably rank above average in offensive foul turnovers just because of the amount of screening going on in the offense. But the point is, you know, if if you're if you're consciously making that trade off because you want the kind of offense that produces good shots, then you're probably going to be okay. And you know, to your point, Andy, 21 turnovers in back-to-back games, 19 of those 42 total turnovers so far have been passing turnovers. Mm. Are you just um, pulling that from play-by-play, by the way, Dan, or do you have a specific site that's doing those? No, I'm doing that from play-by-play. Okay, play. that's what I thought. But uh, I would, a, yeah. good, a good Control-F um, type of research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so so 11 passing turnovers on Tuesday night, another 8 passing turnovers last night. Right now, that's a, that's a big chunk of what the Jazz are struggling with turnover-wise, but you don't see Quinn Snyder you know, ranting about it in post-game because they're the types of mistakes that, that he has told Andy he can live with at the moment. <laughs> okay, cool. So I, the other reason um, I, I wanted, to talk to you, um, wanted to talk to you today was this Pace article you wrote last week. Um, and again, I've heard good things about it from people who are important. So I, I want, first of all, to say... I want you to describe that post, and in particular, there seems to be a difference between kind of this pace statistic that we see quoted a lot, and then how teams actually use the shot clock. Yeah, so so when NBA fans hear pace, they think fast break basketball, and that's a big part of how you can uh, improve your pace metrics and get more possessions into a game. But then there's this other thing that happens when, okay, the break gets cut off. Let's remember that the best fast break teams in the league only score, you know, 16, 18, 20 points that way. So even if you're an elite fast-break team, you're not getting a huge chunk of your offense that way. So the next level in pace is figuring out, okay, now you're in the half court, how are you going to play there? And I think you know part of that means the ability to get into your sets quickly, um, which, is, which is, by the way, something that really since 
a lot of people a lot of people think this is a function of who the Jazz's last coach was. It's not. It's pretty much since Al Jefferson showed up to town, the Jazz have just been a slower playing team. Um, you know, things kind of come to a halt. And then the what what Quinn Snyder has talked about um, starting in training camp is pace as a function of how quick each individual decision is made. So if I'm standing on the wing and someone throws me the ball, does it take me four seconds to survey my options and decide what I'm going to do and read the defense? Or ideally, this is what Quinn's point of arrival is for, for you know pace on an individual level. Ideally, before I even get the ball, I've already read the lay of the land. I've already seen what the defense is doing, and I already have an idea what decision I'm going to make when the ball gets to me so that when I get the ball, it's instantaneous. I'm going to shoot. I'm going to pass. I'm going to put the ball on the floor. I'm going to do something right away. And, um, and that kind of pace permeates everything that good teams do. And, and anyone that watched the, you know, the Spurs five-game shellacking um, is it okay to call it a shellacking, Ben? You're that's that's too of, that's a little too nice, honestly. I think. Okay. What the Spurs did to Miami in in the finals is largely because, like all, no matter who they have on the floor, all five guys at every moment are empowered and able to make quick decisions with the basketball, and it and it makes them ridiculously hard to defend. It makes them ridiculously hard to predict. There's no ego about you know shots and attempts and whatever it's just people there know how to make the right decision and and make it fast and punish the defense for for thinking it's going to take two seconds to make a decision that maybe is only going to take two tenths of a second i think we need uh, tell me what you think here dan i think we need a new term in our nba lexicon i think we need like a, a a term for that period that two or three second period between a pseudo transition and and the half court because that I, I've been noticing this more and more recently and there may in the near future be a post from me on this because I've been swirling this around in my head a lot recently that so these plays and I was talking about this earlier um, the, with the with the the quick hitting plays where that are just you know even just the point guard making a quick pass up from just behind half court to a guy who's you know at the top of the key uh, or or on either wing in the offensive end. And that guy immediately starting a set with before everybody's even down the court type of thing. These aren't real transition plays. We know when we're talking transition, we really mean like you grab a miss, you run. Oftentimes you have a numbers advantage or at least equal numbers and things like that. I'm not even talking about these situations. I'm talking about when the majority of the defense is back on time. You're not going to have an opportunity to run a fast break and get an easy layup. But you still got the defense running backwards. You still got guys that haven't fully set themselves yet. You've still got a guy who's got his head turned the wrong way or who he's you, not in the right place. You've probably foot got position. mismatches at that point. Exactly. Too. You've probably got some mismatches and I the, you talk about the shellacking in the finals from the, I saw a ton of this from the Spurs there where it's just before these guys have a chance to even get their feet set, you get at them and you put them in something that they have to contend with. Even if it's not something that that complex, you put them in a little side pick and roll or whatever you're going to do. I think there's so much advantage and of course it's really hard to quantify this you've done a really good job in your article about as well as you can do i think this is such a huge advantage this little in between time right there before you get into a true set half court offense do you kind of see what i'm saying and agree a little oh yeah i totally agree i i um in fact i i think my very first salt city hoops post ever um was at the end of the 2012-2013 season and it was on pace in fact it was sort of I use these same exact graphs. It's these graphs 
that I did then that I keep going back and updating for each new page piece. And the reason is because those teams, um, that team in particular, that was the, you know, the Mo Williams year, Randy Foy was here, um, you know, that group. But they would, they would cross midcourt, and if the fast break wasn't there, it's like, oh, well, okay, then let's just hang out out here at 30 feet for a second and take a breath and, you know, let the defense switch onto the appropriate guy. And, and so often the first pass to initiate the, the offensive action didn't happen until there were 13, 12, 11, sometimes 10 seconds. Like you're starting your offense with 10 seconds on the shot clock. Um, that's just not very efficient. So I totally agree with you, Ben. I think, um, I think smart teams um, and, 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 you know, look, at the end of the day, with pace, there's no one right way to play. Memphis yeah. is a really good team, and, and they have a pace <clears throat> that they think favors them. Well, they're uh, a really good team, not a really good offense, though. <laughs> that offense was crappy. But. No, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Same with, like, Indiana. Sub-average, uh, sub-average offense, but um, they have a pace that they like, and, and they're able to dictate that pace. And at the end of the day, you just have to be able to do what you want to do. But the teams that play with pace the way Quinn is talking about, that's what they do. They, If the break isn't there, they stay after it. and They get into their sets quick. They make quick decisions. They, <clears throat> they try to catch people. Again, it just comes back to being mentally ready to make the right quick decision when a basketball situation presents itself. And it's, and it's hard to explain that like without getting out on a basketball floor and a basketball court and walking through those situations, but it's making the right basketball play in the right instance. And that's, what's cool about the jazz practicing like this flow sort of setup is, you know, it's not a play. It's not a thing that the jazz are, are doing uh, with structure. I guess they're doing it organically, right? They're, they're really working on their reads. They're working on, getting the right spacing so they're able to make those split-second decisions in the right sort of way. Organic is a yeah. good word. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal. It's going to take some time because the average age of this team is like 23 years old. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely that's what they're trying to create. And, and so far it has at the very least produced some um, more intellectually interesting basketball and maybe over time some – some more successful basketball too yeah we're 2-0 and in preseason baby oh yeah all right well dan thanks so much for joining us keep it up because you really have been killing it on salt city hoops recently everyone go check out those articles on saltcityhoops.com uh yeah dan thanks again for joining us yeah thanks guys thanks dan yeah uh just to echo what andy said and i think i said it earlier as well i also tweeted it this morning uh dan is seriously killing it lately all three of his last three articles have just they he's putting me to shame frankly i gotta raise my, <laughs> i gotta raise my game it's okay well see i think we should have you know rappers have rap battles we yeah. should have uh ben douse first dan clayton writing battle which i am unclear on the format as you and me I, are beefing dan <laughs> I, I just i think there somehow needs to be more battling within Salt City Hoops. <laughs> we need we need productive performances. Of... I would say let's do it on page views, but I'd lose every time. Wah, wah. <laughs> Dan's a popular guy. Um. Anyway, so now that we're, uh, I actually think that was a great show with Justin and Dan joining us. Thanks again to both of them. 
As always, we have our crazy trade of the week. Ben, what do we got? We do. We have a crazy trade of the week. Not a huge trade this week because I think we've been making some pretty large trades in recent weeks that the Jazz probably wouldn't realistically do. But that's why it's a crazy trade that's true. idea. That's true. It is. And so this one's a little, maybe a little bit less crazy, but also I think something that could make a little bit of sense. Um, another one that maybe the other team involved wouldn't necessarily do. But the Jazz are going to be sending Jeremy Evans. Unfortunately, we're very sorry, Jeremy. Uh, I love you. I put you in my last piece. I want to see you dunk the ball as much as possible if this is going to be your your last year in Utah, please do that. Um, we're going to send Jeremy, and we're also going to send one of the numerous second-round picks that are in our current arsenal. We're going to send those to the Los Angeles Lakers for Ed Davis. Um, Ed that Dav- doesn't sound crazy to me. No, I it, mean, re- it really doesn't. So Ed Davis, first of all, was just signed on a minimum deal, so you know his, his stock around the league isn't that great. And you know maybe there's something behind the scenes that goes on there. A lot of times when you look at a player that you, you think there should be some contract competition over and there isn't, Sometimes there's some off-the-court issues or on-the-court personality issues that cause problems. But that being said, you know, uh, barring any of that, I think Ed Davis is the sort of player that the Jazz should be taking a gamble on. Um, You know, kind of Jeremy Evans is, I think, 28 years old now. Um, He's not a young player. And and so if the Jazz are kind of able to get a, a younger player in Ed Davis and get kind of the remaining Ed Davis potential out of it, as you said, they have so many second-round picks that left that it, it just makes sense, to I, I think, in order to see what Ed Davis is. Yeah, so Jeremy's actually only 26, oh, so sorry. we're going to give credit to him. He's not okay. that old yet, but J- Ed Davis is a year younger than that, and r- frankly, I do think he has just a little bit more potential to be a rotation-level NBA player. Um, I-, I really like a lot of the things Jeremy Evans has done. He upped his minutes last year a really a large amount and was able to continue being mostly productive in those minutes, but he's just he hasn't quite been able to find that one those one or two skills that are really going to you know allow for his success in the NBA if you will he hasn't he just kind of hasn't been able to put together that that area that he's really strong in. He's kind of got a bunch of areas that he's that he's pretty good in. I mean, he can jump really high and he can dunk the ball and things like that. But if you don't have certain supplementary skills, that really doesn't mean a whole lot, you know. Right. I, I think Jeremy Evans is interesting because he does turn out so well on like these efficiency metrics and and by de- and both offensively and defensively because he he takes the right kind of shots, i.e., dunks, mm-hmm. and he blocks a lot of shots too. But when you look at his impact from a plus-minus point of view, and you look at it from a you know kind of visually, it's clear that he's not one of the most efficient. He's not one of the best players on the floor whenever he's out there. Yeah, he's shown efficiency, but he hasn't shown the ability to maintain that efficiency while also being heavily involved, like involved enough that you would want him as one of your rotation players. And you know, Ed Davis has looked kind of nice to start the, the in the, the. I've watched little bits of Lakers, and a, a shout out to my cousin James up in Toronto who watches them all the time, and he's been telling me about it. Uh, Ed, Dav- Ed Davis has looked nice. He's got some little things. He's got more of a skilled game than Jeremy Evans does. He, you know, nobody in the league's got the freaky athleticism that Jeremy Evans necessarily does. But I think he's just offering a little bit more on the basketball court. But of course. Jeremy Evans may get another chance to prove himself if he were to go over to Lakerland with a young team. They're going to be playing a lot of guys. Carlos Boozer's the starter, so you know that's not going to last. Sorry, <laughs> I had to. I had to put it you in could, there. Slash will get injured. Yeah. So I, I, you know, and I think it's a chance that just the same way that it, Davis, if assuming they don't actually make this trade in real life and Davis stays with the Lakers, he's going to get a chance to do some things as a as a younger sort of complementary piece there. I think Jeremy would get some of those same chances, and with the Jazz situation where he's. 
very likely not a long-term piece, unfortunately, just because of all the other names that are at the front court that there's money being invested in. Then you look at the Lakers, and it's like Boozer's a stopgap, clearly. Right. And if, you know, Julius Randle's the future, of course, but if Jeremy were to prove a couple things, make some people over there like him and something like that, when this team's looking to restock, who knows if he's not a third or fourth big for them. I think he also could be capable, more capable playing small forward mm-hmm. um, than Ed Davis could, and I think that probably helps the Lakers out a little bit. Um, positionally, and, and especially with Byron Scott's offense, you know, you could see him playing that sort of player at the three. I mean, they're, yeah, anyway, um, I, I think that could be a good fit. I think it's something that the Lakers and Jazz could consider. I don't know if either team, you know, jumps on that deal, but it's something that they owe themselves to at least explore. Yeah, cool. I would agree. No, okay, so uh, awesome show. We got our crazy trade idea. We've got Justin Sweeney on. We got Dan Clayton on. I want to again reiterate that you'll be able to listen to the Salt City Hoops radio show coming up soon. That'll start in about two weeks from now, um, Thursday, October 23rd, 7 to 9 p.m. Be sure you tune in. As always, thanks for joining us. My name's Andy Larson with Ben Dowsett saying so long.